Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to Collie Bristow's US-UK podcast. This is the second half of a two-part episode looking at US planning for UK individuals. I'm delighted to be joined again by Reshma Shah, a partner in the New York office of the US law firm Dwayne Morris. Reshma, thank you so much for joining me again today. How are you? Terrific. Thanks so much for having me back, Aidan. Uh, it's wonderful. It's it's like we were only talking two minutes ago. <laughs> so, Let's just um, keep the fun going. Oh, it's, it's I, you know, like death, incapacity, being buried alive. There's your in-joke for someone who listened last time. It's all fun and games here. So when we were here last, Reshma was very carefully taking us through the sorts of estate planning that she puts in place for individuals who come and see her from a US-focused perspective. And now I'm going to flip the tables and I'm going to ask Reshma to think about, with my input, how that planning might need to be amended, or if not amended, at least um, you know some red flags for Reshma to think about when it comes to possibly someone doing some US-focused estate planning who has some form of lingering connection to the UK in one sort of way, shape, or form. Now, to characterize what I mean by someone with that connection, we have a an idiom or a phrase that we sometimes like to use in our department when we're, when we're talking about this individual. And there are three Ps. There's people, there's place, and there's property. And if any of these three things are something that an individual has, then it means we at least want to be well, the US practitioner to be a little aware of what that means for the US planning purposes. So people, do they have anyone in the UK that maybe their next of kin, a child, for example, being the most common example? Are they an American putting a state plan together, but one or more of their children happens to live in the UK? The second P place is, are they themselves at risk of going back to the UK or going to the UK? Because if they as the individuals go to the UK, that's going to make the planning more complicated. And then the last one, property, sort of feels the most self-explanatory. Do they have any assets in the UK? And if so, what are those assets? What are their values relative to the US assets? And what should we be doing about them? So that's the sort of person that we're talking about here when we're saying, generically, a UK individual. And Reshma, the joke I sometimes make to US attorneys is, when that client comes to see you, if either they give you a UK passport as part of their sort of due diligence on your onboarding process, if they have an English accent, or you know Scots, Welsh, or Northern Irish, let's be fair to all the uh, all the all the countries, or they ask you for a, a warm cup of tea rather than a, a cold iced tea, then you know you <laughs> you might be dealing with someone who is UK by origin. So let's take for example the individual who has recently arrived on the US's shores and does the really dutiful thing of immediately rushing to the law offices of Dwayne Morris and think, I must now get my estate planning in place. So, you know, the taxi's only just left from JFK. And I, I, the first thing I want to do, it's not the Empire State Building, it's not Central Park, <laughs> it's I need to go and see Reshma. Now, for UK purposes, we have a concept known as domicile. The US has a similar concept of domicile, but for UK purposes, it's slightly harder to define. And so it is possible for someone to approach you, Reshma, and say, I'd like to put some estate planning in place. And you might think perfectly comfortably this person is without any question, you know, someone in the US who I can deal with and do stuff on a flexible US basis. But we in the UK need to be careful and think, aha, are they still connected to us in some way, shape or form? Are they still UK domiciled or deemed domiciled in some respect? And what are the tax consequences of an individual being a deemed domiciliary? Is this as a, an issue? I, I, I know your international practice, Reshma, so it's probably not the first time you've heard an English lawyer talk about domicile. When you are sitting down with someone and you're going through their fact pattern, is where have you come from? How long have you been in the US? Is that something that you would typically discuss with a client? 
because it forms part of your thought process? Yes, absolutely. Now, now, one thing I will say that is if they do come straight from JFK, they will not regret coming straight into Times Square. We do have <laughs> one of the best views of Times Square from our offices overlooking the uh, where the ball drops on New Year's Eve. And so I really when I do meet with the not, clients... I hope you're not in the office on New Year's Eve watching the ball drop. I, I know the US, I've only uh, the, done it once. The tax, the tax done it year once. ends on It's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's much, better, it's much better being up in the conference room in the office than it is being crammed like a sardine down in Times Square. Uh, you so I will say if you, <laughs> if, you, if you are interested, uh, reach out. We'd be happy to host you. And so... When I do meet with a client and there, there is a sense of international flavor to them, whether it's their accent or they're, they're telling me about where they previously lived, where they're from, we do get into how long they've been, into the, been in the U.S., where they hold their other passports, you know, whether they are a green card holder or a citizen of the U.S. And, and how long they've been there and what nationality their spouse is as well. So, I mean, these are conversations that we have on day one because it really sets the frame for how their planning is going to be structured and what other considerations we need to take with respect to um, you know, reaching out to other counsel in other yeah. jurisdictions if, if we need to. Certainly when I'm doing this, I, I, I do exactly the same thing. My brain almost sort of pigeonholes between three different types of clients. You've got the client who is just wholly focused on my jurisdiction. I don't need to consider any other jurisdiction because they are wholly in the UK, and it would be, I'm sure, the same for you in the US. On the middle of the spectrum, it's someone for whom you're going, it can be U.S. planning. There's no reason why the planning, and the planning should be led by the U.S. concerns because most of their wealth or their life or whatever is here in the U.S. But we should pay some respect, pay lip service to the other jurisdiction to say, let's at least make sure that whatever we're planning to do isn't going to sort of tip anything inadvertently into a taxable position in other country. And then the sort of the third part is, no, this person is so squarely caught in between the two jurisdictions that frankly it has to be a kind of hybrid estate plan where each jurisdiction has kind of equal merit and weight and that's some of the most complicated i'm not suggesting that our client is in that that camp it's probably the second camp here where you can certainly do all you want to do i'm just like i said sitting here planting a few red flags in the ground to say maybe we should be stopping and thinking about whether something in particular is going to have a consequence here the individual who has recently arrived maybe not having just left JFK, the reason why that's potentially problematic is because that person might remain domiciled for UK purposes, despite the fact they've moved to the US. And as a domiciliary or a deemed domiciliary of the UK, they remain exposed to inheritance tax on on a worldwide basis. They may already, or they may become domiciled for US purposes and be subject to estate tax on a worldwide basis as well. But one of the most fundamental differences between our respective death taxes is that your estate tax allowance, as we mentioned in the first half, is knocking on the door of $13 million these days, and ours is about £325,000. So it's like sort of 25, 30 times lower than your allowance. And so the threshold to suddenly meeting inheritance tax is a lot lower. The other reason why it can really cause a crunch in your estate planning, and this is where I'm throwing sand into your gears as to how you like to do your estate planning, is because of the discussion you said previously about putting assets into living trusts and the merits between doing that during your lifetime or not doing that during your lifetime. Now, for UK purposes, if you set up a trust, and that is a trust that we consider is a settlement for tax purposes, it's not a nominee arrangement, it's not transparent, it is a settlement, 
going to put a coda here and I'll come back to this in a second. The transfer assets into a trust by a UK domiciliary will incur an immediate inheritance tax charge of 20%. If you put UK assets into the trust, then as a general rule, irrespective of whether you're a domiciliary, you're going to pay that same um, inheritance tax charge. And so our concern, whenever you have someone in the US who is doing estate planning, who is somehow still connected to the UK, either because they're a domiciliary, possibly, or they've got UK assets, is that inadvertently, assets might find their way into a trust, for example, perfectly innocently by an American attorney who doesn't realize that what they're doing is about to give rise to an inheritance tax charge. And that can even be the case where, like with the example of a living trust, you don't consider that any tax should arise because as far as you're concerned, it's sort of a notional nominee arrangement that's perfectly transparent for US tax purposes. That might not be the case in the UK. And so the attorney that is cognizant enough to know, ah, this person has a sufficient connection to the UK and we should just check that what we're about to do doesn't cause any consequences in the UK. And it might be, for example, that we would rather that they don't fund the trust during their lifetime We'd rather the substantive transfer of wealth doesn't occur until they are further removed from the UK, or even better, don't even create the living trust in the first place until we are confident that they are no longer deemed domiciled. So I'm I'm terribly sorry, Reshman. When you said at the beginning of the first episode that sort of, I think you said it was 98%, I think, of your clients were going to make living trusts, I'm going to try and sort of shove a, a wedge Uh, a chisel into your 2%. I'm going to try and force it open for all of those uh, UK (laughs) individuals and say, for those individuals, our starting position, our starting preference is that we would rather they hold their assets simply in their own name until we are confident that they no longer have any sort of lingering connection to the UK from a domicile status perspective. Is that something that's going to cause you to have sleepless nights about your clients if I'm telling them just to hold their assets in their own names? No, absolutely not. So what I have done with UK clients that are in the US and that need to do some US planning is that we would either just set up a standalone will, that's option number one, or option number two is what the 98% do where we have a pour over will and a revocable trust, but we leave that trust unfunded. Mm. You create it, you let it be, and do not touch it, do not fund it until you are no longer a UK person yeah. until you are no longer domiciled or deemed domiciled in the UK. There are different aspects to the inheritance tax rules, some of which will apply when, when assets go in. There can be certain aspects to the inheritance tax rules that apply as at the date the trust was created, not funded. And so sometimes the sheer act of creating the trust two years after they've arrived in the US when they're still a deemed UK domiciliary, but not funding it for 20 years it can actually carry the character of the time when they were a UK domiciliary through to when it actually gets funded, even though it's not got any assets in it. So that's why I said the ideal scenario is you don't even create the trust. But where we're trying to find a harmony between the two jurisdictions, it might be that we we can get comfortable with at least delaying the funding of the trust until that point. The other thing that you said that was entirely correct and that we talk about is is, is making sure that the will is correctly drafted. We don't really mind as regards the UK assets, whether you want to leave those as a kind of separate line item, a specific clause in the US will that just says, these UK assets, I leave these all, say, directly to my spouse, and we get an inherent tax spouse exemption, or we agree between us, Reshma, that I'm going to do a separate UK will that covers those assets. But what we don't want to happen is we don't want to have an inadvertent pouring over of those UK assets into the living trust. 
And you know, I am sure with your diligent drafting, that is not something that would happen. My perennial concern with the sort of one trust approach, quote unquote, where you sort of leave an item in, or the two trust approach where nothing in the US will actually explicitly says warning there's another will, is that in 10 years' time, if another attorney comes along and looks at your excellent drafting and recognizes all of the estate planning from a US perspective and just thinks, I'm just going to put a new will in place, we're just going to refresh the documents. And they put their house precedent in place, which says, I, John Doe, hereby revoke all my previous wills, and this is now, this is now my last will and testament. They might inadvertently revoke the previous planning that we'd done so carefully. So my guidance to US practitioners is always and we put some kind of note on the file or, or a slip on top of the, the sort of the original documents that just says, warning, please be aware there is a UK document. Please don't inadvertently revoke my document because it will make me very unhappy. And it's going to make your clients potentially a lot worse off from a tax perspective. Is that kind of record keeping something you do? Or would you actually just into the will put, you know, please note, this is my last will that deals with my US assets. There is actually a separate UK will. Yes, we like to make it explicit that this will and the U.S. is disposing of the U.S. assets, and there is a separate will in the U.K. disposing of my U.K. assets. Or if the case is that there are no other assets outside the U.S., we say, or if they could be, and we don't know potentially where, we just say this will disposes of my worldwide assets. So we make it very clear as to what the disposition, what aspects of it is, it is controlling. So that's very this clear is- that you're not. In unintentionally revoking something that uh, you've created elsewhere. Honestly, it's a fear I have not in a significant number of times when I sort of I, I leave clients on their merry way and go, "Good luck, thank you, some excellent planning. Please don't revoke my will." So that's sort of largely the property aspect. I think as regards the people and the place, the two other P's that I mentioned, they're, they're sort of more closely aligned because they really relate to individuals moving between countries. I think it's hopefully more obvious that if your client in question is going to relocate to the UK, is going to emigrate from the US and immigrate to the UK, then that's probably going to affect their status. And we might want to review the estate planning before they come here, just like if someone was moving from the US to the UK, we'd probably want to do the same. The thing that is perhaps less in the mind's eye of US practitioners is what if one of your clients, Freshberg, comes to you and is wholly an American person. They are American-born and bred, spouse American-born and bred, all their assets are located in the US, but they happen to have a child in the UK, let's say, either you know their only child or one of several children, one lives in the UK. And then we want to think about the parents' estate planning to say, well, do these structures that you've set up in the US, let's say the, the living trust, does that living trust give rise to any tax complications for the child living in the UK? And the answer is it might do. Because the UK doesn't necessarily reciprocate the sort of grant or income tax code that the IRS operates. And so we have to try and liken uh, a living trust to something here in the UK. And it is not uncommon, indeed it is increasingly common, that the revenue authority here, HMRC, may try and tax a UK resident recipient as if they've received a distribution from a foreign substantive trust, an offshore trust. And both the US and the UK have similar enough conceptually rules about how you tax distributions from offshore trusts. So the one parting comment that I want to leave is to take care when you've got someone in the UK who is the potential beneficiary of otherwise US-focused estate planning, because where there is a living trust involved, for the sake of the wallet of the UK individual and the tax liability to the revenue authority in the UK, 
it might make sense to have that planning blessed by a UK attorney or have a discussion at least with the UK attorney about are there ways to cut through that planning that achieve all the same US planning objectives, but without giving rise to quite so many of the more significant of the UK tax consequences. If I could have one plea that I could shout out and, and have plastered on a poster in every single sort of law office of every estate planning uh, attorney's office, it would be, is your client's child living in the UK? Think before you put a place of living trust. It would make my life um, a lot easier, certainly. Reshma, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and understanding about how it is that you put in place planning for your American clients. If anyone listening to this podcast has any questions that they want to learn more about, then I am sure a quick Google of Reshma and her firm will elicit a nice response nice and quickly. And equally, if you have any questions for Collier Bristow or for me in particular, if you're listening to this on our website, there's probably some sort of helpful comments box or an inquiries box you can find this on. Otherwise, it leaves me to say thank you so much to Reshma for your time today. Thank you to you, the listener, for listening. Please do leave a comment and a review, and we would be very grateful if you join us again next time. Thank you very much. This has been terrific. Thanks very much for having me.